Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal Brent. My relationship with the South is somewhat complicated, though it probably really isn't. I mean, I imagine most people one time or other have felt this way about where they're from. I mean, on one hand, I'm immensely proud to be a Southerner, and I don't think I could really live anywhere else. But sometimes it's really hard to love it here. Granted, every place has its issues, I'm sure, but the South's almost unapologetic embrace of less than progressive attitudes by what feels like the majority can be a little hard to take at times. Plus, I really hate hot weather. But this is my home, and for the most part, I really do love the South regardless of its faults. To only focus on the negative would be to ignore the abundance of contributions the South has made, such as Cheerwine and Jimmy Carter. Other than hip-hop, most strands of modern popular music have their origin in the American South. It's the birthplace of blues, country, jazz, and rock and roll. So there's a lot to be proud of, though I didn't necessarily feel this way when I was a teenager. I do realize that this is typical teenage behavior, and I don't think it was flat-out hatred, but more so indifference towards where I was from. This really changed for me in college after taking a couple of somewhat related courses. I took a folklore class that had a heavy emphasis on Southern folk art and a course on Southern literature. Both really blew my mind. Those courses helped me recognize the unique character of my region and led me to the realization of how fortunate I was to be from such a place. It was also in Southern Lit that I was exposed to the writings of William Faulkner, Thomas Wolfe, Zora Neale Hurston, and one of the true loves of my life, Eudora Welty. I have specific memories of reading for the first time Welty's Death of a Traveling Salesman while sitting behind the counter of my campus job in the computer lab for the College of Education. It very much affected me. Music had always made me feel this way, but literature never really had, at least not like that. There are parts of that story that still give me chills every time I read it. Therefore, I went from being an aloof Southerner to a proud one. I now wear a Braves cap, even though I don't care about sports. One should always support the home team. A few years ago, my buddy Andy and I started doing a show on the local radio station in our town of Noonan, Georgia. The show was called The Sound and Fury Radio Hour and was dedicated to playing music by artists from the South. We had a pretty eclectic mix playing everything from Skeeter Davis and Funkadelic to Superchunk and Graham Parsons. For the couple of years that I did the show, I was on a near constant search for artists to play. Georgia, North Carolina, and Tennessee were always well represented. But what I was always really excited to discover were artists from the other southern states. On one search, which initially started at Mitch Easter's Let's Active, and generally being a fan of 80s jangle pop, I eventually found my way to the Jackson, Mississippi band, The Windbreakers. To find an act from Mississippi that wasn't blues, but an actual rock band, was pretty appealing. But what made this band even more intriguing was the fact that they were from Jackson, Mississippi, the same hometown as my literary crush, Eudora Welty. Upon further research, I discovered that their 1985 record, Terminal, was produced by Mitch Easter and released by Homestead Records, the independent label that released early works by 
Dinosaur Jr., and Sonic Youth. So going in, I had pretty high hopes for the Windbreakers. And so with that, I put on Terminal, and I listened. This is the story of that record. I'm Tim Lee, and I was basically half of the Windbreakers. The Windbreakers basically were, for the most part, was myself and Bobby Sutliff and then whoever went along for the ride. And uh, my role was uh, I wrote half the songs and played guitar and bass and sang, and, and Bobby did all of that stuff too. For Lee, growing up in Jackson during the 60s and 70s with the distinct quirks and behaviors typical of a southern town was an interesting and unique experience. Side note. Lee used to live in the same neighborhood as Eudora Welty and would often see her at the grocery store, which does sound amazing. But Jackson was, uh, you know, I grew up there. I was a kid in the 60s and a teenager in the 70s. And, you know, Jackson was just kind of a, it was a funny place because I grew up, you know, as the civil rights era was kind of coming to a head. And then by the time I was a teenager, it had seemingly settled down, but Jackson always kind of had this feel of a place that still was in the middle of the Civil War or something, you know, because there were all these places called Battlefield Park or the Stonewall Jackson Motor Lodge and things like that. And, uh, but, you know, it was also a pretty self-conscious um, city because by the time I was in high school, you know, the the schools had it integrated several years before and a lot of the white kids had gone to private schools. And so, you know, the high school I graduated from was probably 75% African American. And, um, and I think Jackson to this day still has this sort of self-consciousness about itself, but it's, you know, it's a cool place and it still is. I was just there, but you know, as far as musically growing up there, Jackson had like a handful of sort of eccentric people that loved eccentric music and knew several people who, you know, had all the big star records when they were fairly current and people who knew about Captain Beefheart when, you know, had copies of Trout Mask Replica before it was kind of a hip thing to do. And, you know, and even people who like had the Richard Linda Thompson records, you know, long before that, those were fashionable records to have. And, um, but also, you know, there were people doing, you know, free jazz music. I had friends who had a band called R Supernova and, you know, a few years older than me, they were very, you know, Coltrane, Anthony Braxton influenced and, uh, but also Captain Beefheart influenced and, but yeah, it was just a, it was a weird Southern town in a lot of ways. Having initially played in cover bands as a teenager, Lee gravitates towards playing original music, which at times could be challenging in a town like Jackson. The thing that was musically bizarre, somebody coming along, you know, wanting to be in bands and all that, was that, you know, there was no original music scene, you know, in the rock world at all. It was, it was all cover bands and, you know, 
you know, sure, every, you know, every other band wrote a couple of songs, but nobody, like, made that their theme. And um, so it was, like, really having to kind of break out of a mold to actually play original music and go to the trouble to make records and send them out into the world. So, you know, our generation, I guess, the people our age kind of had to make it happen. You know, my wife Susan and I, we we talked this little, you know, beer dive into letting us book bands, and we would, you know, book Rain Parade, Green or Red, bands like that when they came through town. And uh, it was just a time where you had to kind of create a scene of your own because there wasn't one. You know, you didn't, you didn't get to inherit one. You had to create one. <laughs> it is around this time that Lee meets his future bandmate, Bobby Sutliff. Bobby and I met if I remember the story correctly, and, and we've told it so many times that if it's not true, it, it's, it's what we use as the truth, I guess. But I think it is fairly correct that in 1976, we met on the front row of an Alice Cooper concert. And we didn't really, you know, we just kind of met, and then we kind of ran into each other a few times. And it was probably around 78 or 9, uh, we started hanging out, and... You know, Bobby is just like this super knowledgeable dude and uh, knew tons about playing guitar and, you know, just immediately showed me all this kind of cool Chuck Berry guitar stuff. And But he also was really hip to the Flamin' Groovies and Big Star and Shoes and all this kind of stuff. So I'd go over to his house and we'd sit around, you know, drink beer and listen to these records. And we were sort of in competing bands and, my band broke up and he quit his band. So we just decided we would start a band and, you know, we could play a ton of songs. We could play a lot of like Beatles and Yardbirds and King songs and stuff. But yeah, we were also always working on our, you know, our own songs. It is through his friendship with Sutliff that Lee begins to write songs. This eventually leads to the pair starting the Windbreakers. He was like the, the guy that he wrote songs and he had like, two cassette decks that he was ping-ponging back, you know, stuff back and forth, making demos, and so just hanging around with him and stuff kind of led me to to kind of do the same thing. All that stuff was kind of a catalyst at the same time, hanging out with him and writing songs and eventually forming this band. Say 78, 79 was when it all started sort of becoming a thing, and by 81 we had this band. As the band began to play shows outside of their home base of Jackson, they found it easy to travel freely amongst the various independent music scenes, though no one seemed to quite know where they were from. When you, when you come from, you know, nowhere, <laughs> you can kind of be part of anything. I mean, we, you know, we we were friends with the East Coast bands and, you know, like Richard and Mitch and, and all those people, but we were also friends with the West Coast bands like Rain Parade and Green on Red and people, and... You know, we kind of, I guess, maybe had a foot in both of those worlds, but also, you know, our third foot was in, you know, the Deep South. But it was pretty funny when the Windbreakers would go out on the road, nobody knew where we were from. You know, you'd pull up at the club and the poster would say you were from, you know, Winston-Salem or Athens or Hoboken or, you know, because, you know, obviously a cool band couldn't be from Jackson, Mississippi. band from Birmingham, the Primathon, they were sort of our brother band, you know. We played a lot of shows together and, you know, hung out when they came to our town or we went to their town and, you know, hung out a lot in the studio and things like that. But, uh, but yeah, so, you know, we were like the two oddball bands down in our part of the world. In 1982, the band self-released their debut EP, Meet the Windbreakers. 
their follow-up EP, Any Monkey with a Typewriter, would be released the following year. This recording would mark the band's first time working with producer Mitch Easter, best known for his work in the seminal 80s jangle pop band Let's Active, as well as producing R.E.M.'s earliest recordings. That record, we just we did it at this awful little gospel studio in Ridgewood, Mississippi, and um, you know the engineer didn't know any more about what we were doing than we did. It was just a way to get started, to get something going. We did that, and then, you know, in the meantime... You know, we knew who Mitch Easter was because he had songs on the, like, the Shake to Date compilation and stuff. And, um, you know, I think we read a New York rocker or something that he had a studio in North Carolina. And we were like, oh, hell, you can drive there in a day, 12 hours or whatever it was. And so we just, like, you know, called up directory assistants, got his phone number, and gave him a call. And, you know, he was unbelievably cheap to record with at the drive-in there. We were kind of fascinated with... Uh, sort of a psychedelic approach to production on records. And Mitch was just such a a genius. He really was. And I mean, he is. The first time we hung out with him, we were total geeks. We were like, so how do you think they did such and such on such and such record? And he'd go, oh, it's easy to do this. And we'd go, cool, we got to use that sound somewhere. And I, mean, I love that kind of sort of naivete that we had. Somebody asked me to describe that record recently. Two guys crawled out of the swamps. Somebody gave him guitars and shot him into outer space. You know, going into the studio with a guy like Mitch, who who was so smart and so hip and so talented and and just so clued in and just knew how to use gear and knew how to create cool sounds. And we could certainly hold our own and play our instruments and write our songs and all that, but it was just nice to have sort of a sonic, uh, you know, painter there to help. It was around the same time of Any Monkey with a Typewriter's release that Sam Berger starts up the New York-based independent label Homestead Records. Homestead would go on to play an important role in 80s indie rock, releasing works by, as I previously mentioned, Dinosaur Jr. and Sonic Youth, but also Big Black and Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Unfortunately, the label would eventually garner a reputation for malfeasance and label mismanagement, but before all that, it was a small New York label just getting started. Shortly before Berger would leave Homestead, handing the reins over to future co-founder of Matador Records, Gerard Cosley, he contacted Lee about possibly putting out a Windbreakers record. Kind of weird, after after that Any Monkey EP came out, um, you know, we kind of sent it out in the world and there's nothing was happening. So I more or less quit and started this other band called Beat Temptation. But then all of a sudden, you know, the Any Monkey record started getting all this attention, and this guy Sam Berger was at Homestead Records, and he was like, do you want to make a record for us? And so I called up Bobby, and I said, hey, I want to make another record. <laughs> all of a sudden, the Windbreakers was reborn, and uh, somebody wanted to put out a record. Of course, we want to do that. It was a real loose deal. I don't even remember if there was a contract involved. It was just, if you make a record, we'll put it out kind of thing. I remember it being very, very loose, and, and there being no money involved. 
<laughs> With songwriting duties split among Lee and Sutliff, the band went about compiling the songs they would record for their debut full-length record. And of the 11 songs that would ultimately appear on Terminal, only two are co-writes by Lee and Sutliff, and one is a cover. The remaining eight were evenly split and sequenced between the two songwriters. In doing this, the record greatly displays the band's two distinct voices, but also exemplifies how well these voices complemented the other. Well, the main thing is Bobby is like extremely good at doing this sort of straight power pop Eagles influence. And he really thinks it through, you know, like if he writes a song, he knows what all the parts should be. And he's really, really good at it, you know, and I'd say around that time and some of the songs on the Run album and things, you know, I think he was really at a peak, even though he's continued to write tons more good songs. But I really look at that period for myself as, you know, working on learning how to write songs. It was, um, I wrote a lot and I tried to write a lot and, 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 you know, I practiced at it the same way you would practice playing guitar. I was just, like, with the first EPs, I was kind of trying to be a power pop songwriter, and the clothes didn't fit that well after a while. My nature is to fuck around with stuff and not stick to one thing, I guess. I guess I'm not as focused would be the, the polite way to put it. You know, I just, every time I wrote a song, I wanted to try something a little bit different, and, you know, I was certainly listening to a lot of the bands that my friends, people that I got to know were in, and you know, picked up bits and pieces and from, you know, listening to all them. And I think for quite a while there, you know, as different as we were, it still kind of hung together pretty well. With the recording of Any Monkey with a Typewriter being a positive experience, the band decides to once again work with producer Mitch Easter at his drive-in studio in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. When we went to do the terminal stuff, he had just remodeled it some. Um, so that it actually had a little more, a little more space, a little more, um, more flexibility with how you use the space and all. It was, it was definitely more organized. First of all, we went there and did the stuff for any monkey, you know, it, it was still pretty primitive. I mean, it sounded great and he knew how to use it, but when we came back, they'd done a little bit of remodeling and made a little more space, a little more comfortable. And, um... Yeah, and he's just that guy who's always amassing cool gear that you can do stuff with. I have a really, really fond memory of those sessions because he was so much fun to work with. But also, there are always people hanging around, like Faye Hunter was hanging around, so we got her to play bass on the song, you know. And Don Dixon was hanging around. He just happened to be in town, so he played bass on songs. And, you know, he was just hilarious. We'd never met him before, but he just happened to be there, and we're like, well, come play, you know. You know, we would show up, we'd have the songs worked out between the two of us, and then we would teach them to mix who played drums, and then whoever was hanging around might play bass. As far as I know, I think Faye played bass on Changeless, and maybe Don played bass on everything else. After completing a number of tracks in North Carolina, the band continued to work on Terminal at a home studio in Mississippi. For the tracks they recorded in North Carolina, Mitch Easter set in on drums, but for the Mississippi sessions, the band utilized a drum machine. We did the stuff at Mitch's first, and yeah, that's what we got done in the amount of time we had. So then, sometime like a few months later, 
this guy, Rick Garner, had built this studio in his house, and Randy Everett was doing a lot of work there. Randy was a friend of ours and ultimately a long-time collaborator. So somehow this deal got worked out where Bobby traded a guitar to Rick Garner for use of his studio to do the other four songs. And uh, he had, like, one of those really early Oberheims or some, you know, something like that. Because there was nowhere to record drums in that guy's house, so yeah, I mean it was it was you know this was really early in drum machine technology, um, and it's and it's it's really funny to me that some of those songs with the drum machine, like Stupid Idea, and all that stuff, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize it as a drum machine. And in the end, they made a record. Terminal opens with Sutliff's Off and On, a power pop number containing a nice mixture of acoustic guitars, vocal harmonies, and harpsichord accents. I think maybe I played bass on that one, if I remember correctly. And um, but it would, you know, it would have been a part that Bobby would have more or less had worked out because you know, Bobby has a very melodic approach to bass and. Um, and I'm sure I probably followed it pretty closely, but I remember it being a real fun bass line to play. But uh, I like the mix of acoustic guitars in that song. I really like the, the harpsichord keyboard thing that comes in. Totally comfortable to being big fans of that band, The Left Bank. Vince does have an electric harpsichord now, but at the time, I think we were using something like a Yamaha DX7 or something that was at the forefront of the new wave. It is one of my favorite songs of Bobby. It's a really good one. Following off and on, is Lee's Changeless. Featuring the late Faye Hunter of Let's Active on bass, the highlight of this track is the great spaghetti western-like guitar riff that appears throughout the song, nicely adding to the track's triumphant fade-out by overlapping nicely with Lee's melodic guitar soloing. We did it with a regular six-string guitar, played on the low strings, but we doubled it with a 12-string, which gave it a little more depth. 
And um, you know, rhythm guitars don't matter, acoustics. A lot of Lindbergh's recording was with acoustic guitar as the, the rhythm instrument and have the electrics kind of come in and out. Sometimes we did it with stereo acoustic guitars and like both of us sit there playing together, you know, in front of stereo microphones or something. That's just a texture that we really dug. That's one I still really dig. It's a cool way to make records. We had a lot of songs that had solos at the end that just faded out because, and part of that was, you know, that since we were learning the songs on the spot in the studio, we didn't necessarily always have like solid endings for them. So that's why a lot of them fade out. <laughs> yeah, but Bobby definitely was better at coming up with like those kind of Beatles endings that are really succinct and definite. And so, you know, I would guess that his, more of his songs actually end than mine. Mine just kind of, once you get to that, you know, past that last chorus, it's like, okay, we'll just solo till a certain point, then we'll fade it out. But, you know, I have a really good friend who told me once that he played that song for his dad as a way of trying to get his dad to understand him, and I thought that was, you know, kind of impressive. He can come up with a song that somebody can actually use in their life for something constructive you know that's that's pretty big but uh i'm sure i was just trying to sort out the world through my own narrow scope at the time mm-hmm. um but yeah it's, it's a really cool sound of track I, I really like everything about it you know bitches drumming phase bass playing bobby's harmony's really good on it and one that seems to hold up you know people actually bring that song up a lot if you've ever needed an example to prove to someone that a 12-string guitar can make a great song even better, then look no further than Sutliff's stupid idea. This song is Birdsian jangle pop at its finest. Certainly one of Bobby's most popular songs, and it's a it's a really good one. And that riff is just awesome. You know, it's that kind of D to E minor chord progression that just is always going to sound awesome. And yeah, Bobby was really into that kind of approach to playing guitar, and he still is. I mean, it's, you know, Bobby's an amazing guitar player. Um, he's one of those guys that can play just about anything. And you know, he was really good at those kind of twelve string solos too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Bobby did a really good job putting together. And I mean, it's just. It's great. I don't think I really played a whole lot on it. I think I may have played acoustic guitar on it. 
You know, when we did the Jackson sessions on that record, I was kind of in the process of moving to Atlanta. So some of it got finished up after I left. Um, you know, even some stuff on my phone. But, uh, yeah, all fair and loving recording, you know. Lee's A Girl in Her Bible was co-written by his Beat Temptation bandmate, Sherry Cothran, and features on bass producer Don Dixon, co-producer along with Mitch Easter, on R.E.M.'s first two records. This track's placement next to Sutliff's Stupid Idea is a good example of the two distinct songwriting voices in the band. Sutliff's lyrics feel more personal, as if they were inspired by the heartbreak he experienced. Most of his lyrics throughout the record deal with this subject matter, but Lee's lyrics are more like character studies, somewhat literary. Perhaps this is due to him always running into Eudora Welty at the grocery store, But even though the songs are lyrically and somewhat musically different, they still work well together. And, in the way in which the songs are sequenced, they even complement one another. The Eastern-influenced guitar stylings of Sutliff's 12-string work on Stupid Idea segue into the full-on raga of A Girl in Her Bible, electric sitar and all. Sherry's just one of those, and she's still one of my best friends to this day. She's just one of those people that wrote notebooks and notebooks of lyrics and um, was always willing to, like, share them with you, you know, and, like, here, if you can come up with anything from this, you know. Um, so there's several Windbreaker songs that she co-wrote over the years. Um, just She's a great collaborator and just, you know, again, one of my favorite people. Um, but... Mitch had uh, an electric sitar, Carl, down electro, you know, fascination with psychedelic music. And, you know, the electric sitar, you know, we'd, all, we'd always heard that, you know, stuff like uh, Cry Like a Baby by the Box Pop, that kind of thing. And, but also, you know, we'd heard the real sitar, Beatles record, just dug that. And um, so it was just, you know, it was a real fun thing to do. Dixon came up with that awesome kind of McCartney-esque bass part and, now, you know, it's just one of those things where, you know, we, we sat there and learned it. If I remember correctly, it came together really fast. Um, you know, Dixon just started playing that bass line, and it was, like, perfect. And um, I'm trying, I'm, I honestly don't remember how we tracked it, actually. But I do remember it coming together really fast. And, uh, you know, and just immediately having a good feel to it. And, you know, and that was another one of those as a song, just trying to find some kind of different way 
to approach lyrics and all that, you know, um, I don't know that it's particularly, you know, astute or, you know, profound or anything, but I, I think it's at least kind of an interesting concept. <laughs> way is another example of Sutliff's mastery of classic songwriting. With a great melody and concise arrangement, it's a song that would not seem out of place on a record 10 or 20 years before or after the release of Terminal. It truly is just a real gem of a pop song. The one that has like maybe the solos doubled with a toy piano or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, again, that was just one of those fun things where, like, Bobby had this straightforward melodic solo, and it was like, we should double it with the toy piano, you know, which um, I'm sure Bobby played that. But that was just kind of the, the adventurousness of those sessions was, well, we got this cool part, what can we do What can we do here that's different? Everybody in the studio had that kind of mindset of anything was possible. And, you know, again, with somebody like Mitch at the helm, anything can happen in all the good ways. And so that, that song, because that one's a real, if I remember correctly, very straightforward song of Bobby's and a really good one. But, you know, almost every song had some kind of weird thing, like, you know, something doubling the solo or Mm -hmm. something, some out of the ordinary instrument that, you know, we wouldn't have used in a live situation or something. Much like he did with Changeless, Lee showcases his gift for writing infectious melodic hooks with the song All That Stuff. This track is also just another example of the band's ability to create these very concise pop songs with smart arrangements. Side note, this is probably my favorite song on the record, you know, just in case you were wondering. It's a really weird riff. It's got that weird syncopated thing in the middle of it. And, and I actually remember writing that riff because I'd... I'd found a silver tone bass at a, you know, garage sale and uh, it took it home and it just, I started kind of playing that riff that, that could be made into a song. So, you know, I put the, the bass down, I picked up a guitar and started making it work there. Yeah. And that was one of the songs that we did at that, uh, at that guy's house studio in Jackson. And, um, yeah, it was pretty straightforward, you know, and, 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 you know, like I had that really fuzzy guitar solo that, you know, very much follows the melody. 
I did a lot of solos like that back then because I was kind of like, I wasn't very sure of myself as a lead guitar player so much. I would tend to do these simple melodic solos because I knew I could pull them off. You know what I think happened on that song? And, and Bobby could confirm this. Um, I think, you know, again, like I said, I was moving away when we were finished up those songs. I'm pretty sure that Randy Everett doubled the solo like with a with another guitar, and uh, and they didn't want to tell me that he had done it. <laughs> I mean, Randy was one of my best friends. I wouldn't have cared. I'm fairly certain he doubled that solo, and then you know they didn't want me to know that sound I'd gotten on my own. You know, wasn't that great or something? Certainly, in retrospect, it really doesn't matter. And at the time, it really didn't matter either. <laughs> you do whatever you got to do to get a good sound on record. Um, I also have a really funny story about that song. I guess it was 1991. Susan and I moved to Oxford, Mississippi. And so, because um, she was going to go to graduate school and all this stuff. So on the day we're moving, you know, when you move, you got to make all those trips to the grocery store and to the hardware store and all that. So I, I get in the car and I make my first trip and I turn on the college station and I hear that song you know, all that stuff. And I'm like, how weird. That's completely weird, but cool, you know. So then, like, three hours later, I get out to run another errand. I get in, you know, get in the car, and that song's playing again. <laughs> and I'm going, this is too weird. So, like, by the third time, I'm like, man, I must be famous in this town. <laughs> and then by the fourth time, I realized that it was just a tape loop that school was out, so there were no DJs, so it was just, you know, it was the same songs playing over and over every three hours. Buoyant rhythms and a catchy melody, New Red Shoes is about seeing an ex-lover out with a new partner. As I've mentioned, one of Terminal's strengths is both its diversity and cohesiveness. Though all that stuff and New Red Shoes are somewhat musically different, they are connected through their use of fuzzed-out guitar soloing. Sutliff's soloing on this particular track is definitely one of its highlights. On that one, if I remember correctly, Randy and I kind of goaded Bobby into playing all that crazy guitar because he just, you know, he totally went off script and played this amazing stuff. I mean, it's because if you listen to it, like the solo, the first one, the first solo, I think is pretty melodic. And then, but as it goes, it gets a little more 
just you know crazy and and in a really good way you know and a way that neither one of us did a whole lot back then and um and it's and I, and I love that that his guitar playing on that because it is so good and um but you know it's a cool song it's it's got this sort of a cyclical chord progression and um i had to relearn some of these songs last summer we played uh a windbreaker show like it was a benefit for a friend of ours who was really sick so it's always interesting to go back and you know like have to remember the order that the chords go in yeah. <laughs> but that one but that song also i think has a really good arrangement because you know and i think that's where somewhere where bobby was definitely way better than me was as an arranger i just kind of have you know here's a couple of verses here's a chorus maybe there's a bridge we'll put a solo in there and bobby would sort it all out and i think that song is a real good example of the kind of arrangement he could do to like what sounds like a basic power pop song, but it's got it's like a solo in the middle of the second verse or something. <laughs> and then there's the, the kind of solo over the, where it's just hanging on an A chord and accenting it. And it's just, it's really smart. And it, 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 and thus it makes it a really fun song to play because you have a, you got to stay on top of it because it, it doesn't always do what you think it's going to do. But then when it does those things, it's all really cool. Following New Red Shoes is the track again. The song contains some interesting tempo shifts, but its real sweet spot is in the interplay between the guitar and bass during the verses, creating a real nostalgic vibe. It feels very southern and suburban, if that makes sense. That actually was a Beat Temptation song, I think. Yeah, <laughs> it was actually, it was probably like the only Beat Temptation song that I wrote by myself that, that Sherry didn't co-write. Yeah, so I had been playing that live a lot and brought that in. And like I said, these sessions were a little bit, you know, like a few months after the, the, the drive-in sessions. And so I was really kind of starting to feel more at home as a guitar player and be a little, you know, more aggressive it's a slow song, but the the guitar, you know, stuff is pretty aggressive. So as a song, it's one of my favorites. I, I would probably play that today if I, you know, was in a position. <laughs> I don't have that. I don't have that kind of band anymore. But if I did, I would play that song. One of the true highlights of Terminal is a charmingly homespun version of the song "Glory" by the influential New York band Television.
this recording, Lee and Sutliff are backed by Los Angeles-based band Rain Parade. Side note, I'm almost ashamed to admit this, but for many years I, I sort of dismissed television's second record, Adventure. I mean, it's no marquee moon. But to be fair, that's a pretty high watermark. But after hearing the Windbreaker's version of Glory, I re-examined Adventure, and and there's some really great songs on there, like Days and Carried Away. So I'd like to formally apologize to television. I mean, it's a great record. I apologize. You know, like I said, Susan and I had been booking bands to play this little club, and uh, the Rain Parade came, and like everybody that came, you know, they stayed at our house and hung out. And, and like, I think they played on a Saturday and had the next day off. So they just hung out, and we just immediately hit it off. And, I mean, you know, I, I, Matt Pucci is still, a, you know, one of my great friends. So but that was just the way it worked back then, you know. Like, you'd hang out with these other bands, and, and, you know, I have so many lifelong friends from that era. So they were hanging out, and uh, I don't know, they were, like, coming back through town in a few days. So I just kind of, I think I, you know, kind of initiated this sort of harebrained idea of, well, when y'all come back through, just stop, and we'll, we should just, you know, I'll see if I can book a studio, and let's record a song. And, and they were actually doing Glory in their set. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, we chose that one, and they agreed to this, and we, uh, so we just, I, I, I remember, you know, very plainly on our way out to the studio, which is, you know, it was kind of out west of town, if I remember correctly, we stopped at this sandwich shop. And and we're talking like, well, how are we going to go about doing this? You know, we're like planning it over lunch. And Mm -hmm. I remember sketching the arrangement out on a, you know, a paper bag. (laughs) And, uh, like, you know, well, here, I'll play that first little tiny solo. And then Bobby, you and Matt can split the longer solo. And, you know, I don't, I don't know how I got nominated to sing it, but I did. So, uh, and then, there's a break in the middle. They're like, well, what do we do there? Because, you know, the record just kind of ends, I think. I said, well, we should, you know, have a little breakdown, have something go on there, and then come back in and do the first verse again. And, well, let's get Will to do, Will Glenn to do a, a violin solo. Will's like, well, I broke a string. I've only got three strings, and we're all like, well, that's enough, isn't it? So that's like a three-string violin solo in there. <laughs> yeah, so it was just super spontaneous, but uh, but it was it was so much fun. I mean, it was just you know just one of the most fun days, just pure insanity. The, the, the control room of the studio was in a bus built next to the building, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, tape machine had to be wound by hand and stuff. It was crazy. I mean, it was was total, you know, sort of gorilla recording. And, uh, we added the vocals later. We just had some friends come stand around a microphone and and sing, you know, credited as the Silver Tones Gospel Quartet or something. But it's funny. I mean, I, you know, people over the years, I've had people tell me, you know, I discovered television from y'all's record. (laughs) That's just insane. That's, that's just nutty. It can't be that way. That's not right.
As we near the end of Terminal, the band gives us their slow jam from a distance, which is one of two songs on the record of which Lee and Sutliff share co-writing credit. Yeah, on that one, um, from a distance, I remember like I was I was homesick from work one day or something, and Bobby was it was his day off or something, and he called me and said, "Hey, I got this song. Want to come over?" You know, and and Bobby would always play songs for you in various states of completion but uh he brought it over and and i you know somehow i just kind of ended up helping him finish it and i honestly don't know what my contribution was i mean i mean i think he had it musically he had it all there and i just kind of helped maybe write the last words or something Mm -hmm. um but it was one of the times that we actually sat down and collaborated on songwriting and uh and yeah, I think it's a really cool song. It's—I don't think I, I don't think I, you know, ruined it or anything. <laughs> Terminal ends with a cathartic running out of time, and like the previous track, the song is another writing collaboration between Lee and Sutliff. And that was one that Bobby came up with that riff and again was over at my house and showed me this riff and um, we had a some kind of multi-track recorder at my house that we borrowed from somebody and at some point you know, I started making a demo of this and Bobby I think had a verse and a chorus and then I came up with the rest of the words and and ended up singing it. But I, I had this, this memory of us doing this demo where we just used some cheesy you know, rhythm box to to have something to keep time. But then we somehow there was a snare drum lying around. We thought we were going to overdub a snare drum, so we set it up and hung a microphone from you know like a ceiling light or something because we didn't have you know of course we didn't have any mic stands or anything useful. And uh, I just remember that being kind of gonzo and us just overdubbing as many guitars as we could possibly get away with. Mm-hmm. Um, but that one also kind of goes off the rails at the end. Like, that's, you know, one of those where it was fading out. I want to say Don Dixon led that kind of gonzo, uh, you know, side trip into um, something resembling the blues. <laughs> Yeah, we were just, we kept playing, and, and, and it was one of those things where it just probably went, like, absurdly long, 
and we all probably started laughing and, and just started doing that. I mean, it was completely spontaneous, and, you know, you, I think you probably even hear us laughing on there. But to me, that's, like, really indicative of what those sessions were like, you know, that the most absurd thing could happen, and we would just embrace it. But we also did a lot of, like, really good work, too. But uh, I, I like any situation where the absurd is a possibility. For the album art, the band brings in artist Robin Evans to design the cover. The end result is a color-altered photograph of what seems to be someone sunbathing at a community pool. Yeah, there was, there was an artist we knew there in Jackson, and I, I think I probably asked her to do it. And We gave her, like, no direction whatsoever. We just wrote out a bunch of stuff and said, here, here's, here's what it's called, here's the stuff, you know. See what you can come up with. <laughs> you know, there, there was no art direction involved. And, and I think it's a cool-looking album cover, so. With the recording and design complete, Homestead Records releases Terminal in the fall of 1985. So it came out around the time probably I had been touring with Let's Active. You know, and immediately got a lot of good attention because it was a really, it was an interesting time for independent music because there were, you know, enough independent labels you know, enough fanzines to write about it, and college radio stations would play it. Because even when we were putting out our own records, we, you could send any monkey with a typewriter to a college radio station anywhere, and they would play it. And, you know, I've often said we just were kind of in the right place at the right time to be part of that, because it just was kind of, a, for a, a little while there, it was kind of magic, but all you had to do was, like, make something, put it out in the world, and, and it got some attention. And any monkey, like I said, had gotten a lot, a good bit of attention, and so I think people were kind of ready for a fully the, the ones that were paying attention, you know, um, all fourteen of them. It, you know, I mean, it, it did what it did, and we never had a consistent touring situation. Um, that's a whole other story, but and so we always had kind of like a, a ramshackle, you know, duct tape together operation, and. Uh, which probably did not work in our favor, but people liked our band. They liked us and, you know, we put out our records and stuff and and booking agents would book us and, you know, that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, to me, you know, the very definition of the windbreakers, you know, quote unquote career was, you know, in 1983, um, we were listed in Rolling Stone magazine as one of the nine top unsigned bands in the country. And within a year, everybody else on that list had a record deal. But uh, 10,000 Maniacs and Tommy Keen and, you know, it was an impressive list. But we were not the ones that were going to be on Electra Records. You know, that's just the definitive story of the Windbreakers. There are a lot of people that that record means a lot, too. But, but it's a small group. But, I, you know, I certainly I appreciate them. And um, But, you know, there's never going to be like a million people who appreciate or they probably probably not even five thousand people that are going to appreciate it. It's uh, we we were uh, predestined for obscurity, and I'm totally comfortable there. Lee and Sutliff would continue working together throughout the '80s and early '90s, releasing a number of records through the legendary Atlanta-based independent label DB Records. And in the 35 years since the album's creation, Lee's feelings towards Terminal are still mostly positive. You know it. it it's always going to be like an, a mixed bag of emotions for me because I, I, I am proud of that record. I think we did a really good job with, and you got to understand we made that record with no money whatsoever. 
You know, we were, like I said, Bobby traded a guitar for some of the studio time. Homestead didn't pay for the recording. They just offered to put it out if we got it recorded. And, you know, it was a standard production and distribution deal, whatever they call it back then. And um, so on that level, I'm super proud of it. Um, as a guy that's completely self-conscious about the fact that he was ever young, at uh, you know, anything from that era, and I feel like, oh, I was, I was learning how to write songs, you know, but that's just my own self-consciousness. That's all that is. But it's, it's, it's a cool record. I think we did some cool things with it, and it certainly helped establish what reputation we did have. And and then again, I have, like, super fond memories of the recording and all. I mean, it was just super fun sessions. Thanks for listening to In Loving Recollection. A very special thanks to Tim Lee for speaking with me about this very special record. You can stream some of the songs from Terminal on the various streaming platforms, or buy a copy at the usual online retailers, or why not check out your local independent record store? Maybe you can find a copy there. Seek this stuff out. It'll make you a better person. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or at inlovingrecollection.com. We'll see you next time. We'll get through this.